Hello, and welcome to the 25th Hour Ideas Podcast with your host, Michael Gallagher. Our goal is to investigate the knowledge, skills, and habits required to build a first-class organization. To do this, we examine topics through the lens of sports, economics, and finance. Dan Hatman is currently the Director of Scouting Development at the Scouting Academy, where he creates and executes a curriculum that teaches aspiring scouts about the intricacies of football. He's worked as an NFL scout, college coach, consultant, and now is educating those people entering the scouting profession. While reading his work, I was captivated by his use of principles from economics and decision-making with regard to football. This is a fascinating conversation about building organizations, framing decisions, and ideal skill sets to develop. So without further ado, let's get to it. Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really been looking forward to speaking with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to dive in. I came across your work a few months ago when I was stumbling around SSRN. I forget exactly what it stands for, but it's this big repository of of social science papers. And I think you you had said you wrote for your master's this long study on everything related to general managers in the NFL, which fascinated me. And I, I combed through that entire paper and then reached out to you afterwards. And that got me going down this rabbit hole of other things you had written about NFL executives and your work with the Scouting Academy and other interviews of yours. So I've got a lot of things I, I want to get through. I, I, I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts. But f- first, this this story, this article you wrote about the Bears drafting Mitch Trubisky caught my eye. I was reading this last night and you were explaining it was a conversation between you and your wife about it being about the Bears trading up to pick Trubisky, and it was it was about human capital acquisition, and not about not rationalizing it like doing like doing something they've always done. And I guess I can go into more details here, but do you remember exactly? You you were justifying their trade up for Trubisky, but not from the sense that people think it would be. I was. It's always interesting to have football conversations with my wife. As much as time as I spend in this industry, she's never really grown to love football. So I find that to be frustrating and refreshing uh, all at the same time. And, and she knows that. One of the nice things is when I bounce a concept off of her. I'm forced to clarify so many things and to make my points uh, broad and concise so that someone that doesn't have a long history of studying football can follow along. Simultaneously, she's not burdened with the status quo of football. You know, she doesn't think about it in terms of the way it always works. I was at dinner with her and I was trying to wrap my head around the move from three to two. Right, so they moved up pick to get the quarterback that they wanted in that draft class. And as I was kind of outlining things to her, she was poking, you know, poking questions. You know, what about this? What about that? And as I was trying to explain it, I think it kind of crystallized between her thoughts and mine of 
it seemed as simple as they wanted to walk away with Trubisky. They wanted to limit as much risk as possible. They had known in their conversations with San Francisco, because clearly that ended up being their trade partner, they knew San Francisco was very willing to get out of the pick. And so if you know the team right ahead of you is very willing to move that pick and you have convinced yourself of this is the player that's going to change your franchise, why hold on to any more risk? Why not go and secure that piece? A few years later, Dave Gettleman moved. I want to say it was what? Like, he, had, no, he had pick 17 and pick six. And the assumption was the quarterback that they ended up taking, Daniel Jones, may have been available at 17. He ended up taking him with six, and he made a very similar argument in that if I was going to take him at 17, if this is my quarterback, this is the guy that I want, then why am I waiting? Why am I playing games with the most important position on the field? Uh, so I think that's kind of the, the the roundabout thought I got to is, yeah, they absolutely traded additional capital to move one pick uh, to secure the rights to this one player. But clearly it was about limiting the risk of somebody coming up and taking the player that they wanted. Because when you have that thought that this is the number one quarterback on our board, you assume someone else is carrying that same thought. Right, Because if you have looked at all the evidence and you have come to the conclusion that Mitchell Trubisky is the best quarterback in that class, there's, you know, what, another dozen teams in a reasonable striking distance. Uh, most of the teams that are at the top of the draft are lacking quarterbacks. So you start assuming that somebody else has the same thought. Why not get ahead of all of them to ensure you can get the one you want? There was a quote you had mentioned in that article that said, this is something your wife had said to you. You wrote, the odds are low until it happens to you. Then the odds are 100%. And I, I was I, I just want to add, I was fascinated by that. And there was another quote I, I saw from on Twitter from this financial manager, Jim O'Shaughnessy, that said that we're deterministic thinkers living in a probabilistic world. And I think that kind of opened my eyes to what you were trying to get at. Absolutely. I I try to leverage as much data as I can in my decisions. I try to explore expected value. I try to, you try to build those mental models as best you can. But ultimately, if the chances that somebody else was going to come from Mitchell Trubisky, even if it was, you know, 40%, So there's a 60% chance you get your guy. Well, then over time, right, you would make more money taking the 60% bet, except quarterback is the most important thing. And you don't get, usually, usually don't get another chance to draft. We'll see if Chicago gets another chance here uh, this cycle. But usually you don't get another chance. You don't have the job long enough to find that. So why take a 40% risk of losing that player in that moment as opposed to jumping. Now we can obviously debate the merits of who they selected at number one, but in that moment when they completed their research and that was their player, I could understand how they arrived at that conclusion. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating because 
I think you had said this. You had said, like, the move could be a referendum on the Bears' staff's ability to evaluate and develop quarterbacks. But that's a, that, like you said, that's a separate issue. But moving the draft capital to acquire their guy, like, that, that's the thing that I find so fascinating. Because in, in things like behavioral economics, there, there are all these, like, studies that point at the huge – there's never been a bigger difference – in a two percentage point swing in chances than I think going from 49% to 51%. Like if people heard there was a 49% chance of rain, they're much less likely to go outside with an umbrella than if there's a 51% chance of rain. And the, these things, if, if you break them down mathematically, there's really not much of a difference from going from 51 to 53 percent as opposed to 49 to 51 but these little edge cases just seem to mess with our minds they do we are we are fascinating and you brought up behavioral economics and it sounds like you spent time with Tversky and Kahneman and everything that's come um, out of that it, we have to continue to pursue understanding of why our minds operate the way they do build an opportunity for reflection um, and to consider all these different pieces. You know, again, the time horizon becomes, I think the most interesting piece in trying to apply logic and data to football decisions, because how long will it take for that edge to add up? if we're talking about very small edge and you might need five or 10 years in order for that to build up to something where then it becomes a competitive advantage, will your owner give you that time versus if they reduce the time horizon to 18 to 24 months before you have to show something, you have to buy more risk in order to manage that, which is why I know we'll talk a lot about general managers. They're not the final decision maker. Ultimately, they have to pitch their decisions and the major decisions up or on to the person that signs the checks. And so that person and the, again, the time horizons, the resource allocations, the, um, the support given by ownership to the final decision maker, to me, is a stronger barometer of success than even individual capacity from the GM. There's so many things I want to unpack there, and, and I have them written down. We're going to circle back to that in a second. But something I was very interested in, recently I was listening to this this episode of the Infinite Loops podcast, and there was an entire episode breaking down what exactly Twitter has provided us, given that you know how to use Twitter for the best use cases, and some of the takeaways, there, there were two takeaways that I had that I want to get your thoughts on. First is that I, I'm, I bet you're like very familiar with the concept of trying to get to extract the signal from the noise, especially in with with teams hiring executives. You want to, or even drafting players. There's there's so many decisions where you want to get as much signal as possible and filter out the noise. And Twitter has this fascinating way of doing that because you could see exactly who everyone on Twitter is following. 
say say you knew, for instance, that someone put a lot of thought into curating their list of who they're following on Twitter, you could just piggyback and look at that list and in theory, get a lot of information. And the second part is that someone I heard described Twitter as the free tier to the best thinking in the world. And it's fascinating because if you do know where to look and who to follow on Twitter, you do get exposure to some amazing thinking from all these people from from all sorts of domains. And I was looking through who we both follow on Twitter, and I wanted to run down this list and ask about any lessons you've learned from these people. But how is that is that kind of how you view Twitter too? Because I know the downside is if you're not really careful about what you're doing, Twitter becomes the ultimate confirmation bias machine, which I, I, I know is not. <laughs> I was going to say there, there is an element of echo chamber um, that is entirely plausible with the tool. But again, I think it's in how you apply it. Oh God, my relationship with Twitter. Okay. Uh, first account was while I was working for the Eagles and it was for me to be able to go look at prospects accounts. <laughs> so um, was not something I actually tweeted on. And so I would follow the players and that led me to following kind of your major news sources, the the Schefters, the Garofalos of the world. And so then it became collecting information on players for our purposes, coupled with kind of news aggregation in the football world. And then in 2000, 2013, when I uh, stepped away from the NFL and started what I'm doing now at the academy, then it became just trying to be out there, um, engage with people to share what I had learned, to learn from others. And so I remember when I first got on, I started basically just these Q&As. I just had a blast doing kind of Q&A style. And they would ask, like, hey, who do you follow? And I would, so, you know, just put all these questions out and then, you know, whoever was recommended in that, you know, people would tag um, other people on Twitter and I'd go and I'd follow them and uh, go along that way. And so I think the lesson that I learned over years now, shoot, it looks like seven or eight years of this now, you may not know overnight who is an interesting thought leader or not, but you can filter that over time for sure. And trying to cultivate <laughs> your Twitter follows. Um, I will say that a lot of people start to play the game of following back or following those that they think might be able to advance some agenda of theirs. So follows alone aren't always signal to use that terminology um because i know you know a lot of people will follow and then mute <laughs> accounts so it shows the follow <laughs> but then they mute them so they don't actually have to hear what they're saying um i'm always interested in the the like retweet um you know quote tweet comment what have you the engagement with people is kind of where i've gone into and uh, into your original question and point yes i i 
there's so many layers to it. You'll go and you'll, you know, you'll follow one person because you're interested in something that they're bringing up and then they start liking and putting into your feed these other people. And then it just kind of spirals. Um, and so that exploration has been illuminating. There are brilliant people publicly analyzing this game um, who have wonderful thoughts that I wish people employed uh, by teams would bring into the game, but uh, I can't wave my magic wand on all of that yet. And then there are people that are publicly analyzing this game that are just, they're the um, fake it till you make it. They are out there. They are pontificating on a soapbox. They are using big buzzwords. They have downloaded some coaches playbook. They are claiming this is three Mabel coverage and yada yada, and they don't have a clue what they're talking about. And that's, I think, where it can be hard, that Dunning-Kruger style of sometimes you don't know until you know, and then once you know, you realize you don't really know, if that, if that made sense. That's been my experience with Twitter in a nutshell. <laughs> I, I just I keep it safe and just assume I know nothing and and uh, don't don't put anything out there that even has the slightest chance of of being complete nonsense. I recommend that people have like the the second account where you can type out the response that you want to write and then delete it before you actually hit send. Um, I delete a lot more responses than I actually press send on because <laughs> there's there's. I don't always find it to be a medium of back and forth. It seems to be more of a medium for a person presenting an argument. And then if there is a counter that's reasonable, then it usually turns into some sort of podcast. But the the medium itself of Twitter, I, I haven't found to be a tremendous back and forth. Well, I've got a list here of people we follow and most of this is most of these people are not even football related but i know that you take their ideas and try to extrapolate them into football decision making which is what i find so fascinating and for example i know michael malbison is this incredible thought leader in the financial world and things i've learned from him is he would share these articles he wrote in the 90s about how exactly he valued Amazon as a company and how to value companies now where you have to look at things like optionality, where how do you price in various positive options for, for companies like Amazon that maybe start in the book business, but then... Of course, there's potential for them to to go into all these other areas, but how do you weight these probabilities? How do you analyze what their prospects are in the future? Because obviously, you know, Amazon might not stay a book business. It might, it might not, it might fail, or it might become the everything store. So these are some things he grapples with. And one of the current things he's been writing about is how intangible assets are valued in a way that going by 
by the old rules of and the accounting standards about looking at the book value and all these things. He's trying to get people to see the complete picture when most of the ways people are looking at things are almost archaic. So I, I think what, I, what I've taken from him, I want to hear your thoughts on this about what you've learned from people like him and how that's translated over into football. The origins of finding Michael and, and others. So I said in 2013, I stepped away from the NFL. The first thing I built when I left the NFL was actually not the scouting Academy. It was a company called dynamic sports solutions. And we had determined that one of the major failings in football is not the collection and the evaluation of these different components of a player. We're, we're doing okay in those realms where human beings fail is taking disparate information. So height, weight, speed, and your measurables versus objective production versus objective athletic measurement versus subjective character assessment versus subjective intelligence assessment versus objective intelligence. All of these different things that we've collected over time, I don't think the individual points are way off base, but ultimately, to use the words of Lewis Riddick, what will you give up to get them? Right? He was an econ major at University of Pittsburgh, and it was a thought exercise that he would go through and to try and determine the value of a player. And so what Dynamic Sports Solutions was endeavoring to do is improve our ability to value the entire profile of a player more systematically because it's in that aggregation of everything where the largest opportunity for human error occurs. And so we built an algorithm and a process and a piece of technology. And then, you know, to try to relate this to most people, then it was basically the shark tank tour. Then it was trying to find funding. Um, So I, played in the realms of going to venture capital groups in the New York um, area and pitching and going to, you know, all these different types of events and meeting these people in this whole world of venture capital and entrepreneurship in that manner became open to me and I, and to learn from it. And I've tried to keep my roots as much as what I do now with the Academy and, my other endeavors are not as rooted in that VC world. I do try to keep a part of me tethered to that because I have always been interested in the decision-making and the theory behind it. Um, and so Abusin there and the Alliance for Decision Education um, – has really been a, a strong thing for me lately because that's what we're trying to do. You're trying to make decisions on which human beings, which collections of human beings, which human beings should lead those human beings. All of those different questions, the, how do we 
allocate these resources and assets. Like these are just such multi-criteria decisions. And there has not been any evidence of an organization systematically beating their peers year in and year out. So like we don't have an example of a team that has a top five draft class every year. You have some that are above, you know, in the top half consistently or most of the time, but it's not like somebody has bested the market and they're constantly, you know, defeating their opponents in the draft year in and year out. And so to me, that's the largest opportunity for edge, for competitive advantage is, well, then we're not dealing with the market well. We're not valuing prospects properly. We're not managing the market well if we're stuck with these low hit rates. I haven't updated the study in probably two years. Uh, So this is a little bit of old information. But for years, I would study first round hit rate. All right, and this was just kind of a a proxy for overall decision-making. The thought being, if we care about first-round picks, right, it's the most important thing. It's all we ever talk about. Um, Most important, especially now with the new CBA, right, and the cost-controlled rookie salaries, the most important asset these organizations have access to. And it's the thing you spend the most time, most stress in the process trying to determine what to do with. You're not stressed about what to do in the fifth round, right? You'll you'll be ready when the fifth round comes and you'll make a decision, but you're not stressing over what you're going to do in the fifth round. You're stressing over what you're going to do in the first round, right? So it's the thing we get measured against. So I went back and pulled every grading scale from all the teams that I had worked with, and every first round grade would be accompanied by a sentence explaining what that grade meant. And every one of those sentences had the word pro bowler in it. I'm not saying the Pro Bowl is a fantastic proxy for success, but if we're measuring success based on your expectations, then a reasonable barometer for performance is did this player drafted with the number one pick, the the first round pick, did that individual go to at least one Pro Bowl representing the team that drafted him? Not that they have success later on with somebody else, but with a team that used that pick on them in the first round, did that player go to at least one Pro Bowl? Understanding that Pro Bowl access is even easier now because so many players opt out. And my last update of the study, it was only 35% of the time. And that's about what Philip Tetlock had determined with monkeys throwing darts at a board when he did his forecasting work and really led to me to explore Bill Polian's comment on if you can hit on 50% of your picks, you're doing good. He's not wrong in a market where 35% seems to be industry average. 50% would be better. But then you go read Bill Walsh's work and he tells you that in order to have sustainable success, you need to hit on 80% of your picks. And what I mean by hit is whatever the expectation was, when you set the projection, this player will do X for us in the next two to three years, then they need to hit or exceed that for it to be success. And 
80% is just not been something anybody's been able to do. But I do think it's what people should be striving for. And so, yeah, I continue to explore those thought leaders because I would love to see if there are solutions that could get organizations closer to that 80% threshold. So many fantastic things in there. I guess going in chronological order, you mentioned first Lewis Riddick, and I can't remember exactly the way you said it, but basically, and and this is something I'm fascinated with and try to get myself thinking in this mental model of thinking of everything in terms of opportunity cost. And I think you had said that when you're acquiring a player, and I, this goes beyond the draft, like free agency via trade, in order to judge that decision before you make it, you really have to think of what is the opportunity cost of signing or drafting this player or trading for them? Like by, by doing that, there is obviously in every case, there is an alternative that I am choosing not to do. And the best alternative is my opportunity cost. And that, that, that applies to all areas of life too. But, but especially there's huge opportunity costs for these teams that people really aren't factoring in. And another thing that I find fascinating I'm sure you're familiar with the with the paper that Richard Thaler and and Cade Massey wrote on the loser's curse in the NFL draft. How they made a very compelling argument. I found that the most valuable picks in the first round of the draft come at the very end of the round. There's definitely a lot of merit in what they wrote. I do think overall teams have started to move some of their decision-making a bit closer to that. So we were going to need to update that work um, to reflect current market structure. The interesting thing is that I, I actually, as much as I respect it, I diverge from where they're at a little bit. Um, When you look at most of the draft classes, there are two small clusters that appear early. So most classes don't have more than six or 10 really, truly unique players. And so there's that group. And then in a given year, you might have anywhere between 17 and, you know, in a really robust year, maybe 25. Like first round pick in that they should be superior performers consistently. And so there's an athletic profile, a size profile, a mental profile, hopefully all of them combined, that's going to put them in the top, you know, towards the top percentiles of their position group. So there's not even 32 guys in a given class that are unique. But yet we're going to have 32 picks because that's the number of teams and the number of allocated picks. If I was running an organization, unless I'm in that position where I can take one of those six to 10 unique players, I'm not sure I draft in the first round. I really don't want to draft between 25 and 32 unless I want the fifth year option to control that player's market for some reason. Other than that, I would be trading that because the, the value of that pick right? Because everybody gets excited about the opportunity to draft someone in the first round. I'm looking at the actual market of players in this and saying, 
chances are the person I'm taking between 25 and 32, I have a second round grade on. And so, I mean, I, I've been in draft rooms where you only have 17 first round grades. So I wouldn't want to draft a player with a second round grade in the first round just because that's the best player available on my board. I would get out of the pick. This is where they start to my moving down. Now, we could play that out for a long time, right? I could work all of my top assets down. I could probably work enough trades where I could have 40 seventh-round picks. I mean, I think it's entirely plausible to play this game out, this line of logic out, right? Trade down, trade down, trade down. I I really honestly believe I could get 40 first or seventh-round picks. But the chances of someone in the seventh round hitting and becoming a starter is probably one out of those 40. So I think there's, there has to be some, I use, I'm a big fan of the analogy of bumpers on a bowling lane, but I do think you have to set some bounds to where you want to be at. Like I don't necessarily want to draft in the first round unless I'm at certain places in the first round or the market provides certain players. If they don't, I'm out. Same time, if I'm getting out of the top 100, top 125, again, the hit rates drop off. And I know some people seem to go back to like the undrafted free agent markets actually have stronger hit rates than some of your sixth, seventh rounders. But that's just, there's a logical fallacy in that because we just sign more of those, right? We can only draft, you know, a sixth and seventh round player unless we get, you know, trade for additional of those. But I can sign 27 undrafted free agents. So, yes, the likelihood that one of those 27 hits versus one of my six-rounders hits is going to be greater. That doesn't mean I want to spend all my time in undrafted free agency. Like, we have – we go into this market and assign these resources because most of the time, even though 250 players are going to get drafted, there's probably half of that that have strong profiles that lead towards a starter. And so I do think you want to acquire as many of those as you can. But I'm not of the just trade out, trade out, trade out, trade out. Because, again, I, I don't want to be sitting there in the end of day three now using all my draft selections. So you had mentioned that, like with the draft and signing players, how everything is a market. And really, it all comes back to supply and demand. It's like the one economics concept that I think everyone knows. And... You mentioned that like really smart people can recognize trends ahead of time and predict these things out fairly accurately. And that's where the work of, of Tetlock with super forecasting comes into play. And you could zig when other people zag. And it's all about finding market inefficiencies. And something that really stood out to me was there was this episode of the Planet Money podcast a year ago, how a Hollywood producer or, or someone working for a Hollywood producer, I guess my, my rudimentary understanding of the movie industry is that there are tens of thousands of scripts written every year by aspiring writers and only a very small percentage of them are turned into movies. But to, to do that, someone has to go through all 50,000 scripts that, that come across their desk and there really isn't the manpower for one studio or one team of people to do any of that. So this guy 
came up with an anonymous email account, made a made like a a, a communal Google Sheets document, and had all of his connections in the industry across all these companies and independent people mention if they liked a particular script they read across all these 50,000 scripts. And he came up with this communal list of what people liked the most. And it turned out that it was an incredible predictor of not only what films would get made out of those does like tens of thousands, but it was fairly accurate in having award winners, future award winners on there. So this is something that I find very fascinating because I think there's the possibility for something similar with the NFL draft. So we're talking about crowdsourcing. Yeah. It's like a, a crowdsourcing, but it always fascinates me how I forget if it was Ted Locke that wrote about this, but Say, say there was a county fair and there, there's a, a bucket and everyone's putting their guess in as to how much the the prized cow weighs and, and the winner wins a prize. And you know that no individual person is likely to guess the weight of the cow correctly. But if you add up thousands and thousands of guesses, it turns out that the crowd is usually spot on. So I I agree. Uh, again, there's a kind of a point where it would fall off for me. So if we were to crowdsource among those with some domain expertise, then I think I'm right there with that. When we look at, you know, when we actually look at the draft, the highest percentage of starters do come from the early rounds, right? So the the league, the entirety of the market does seem to show the ability to unpack and uncover which players have the highest probability for success. Now, again, an individual organization has not been able to master that above their peers in perpetuity, but the market itself does seem to understand um which players are there. Cause again, if I pass on them, you know, with 21, but the team at 22 takes him and he turns out to be good. Like, again, we've, we've captured most of those players uh, in that way. What becomes interesting is that when we do talk about this and the reason I talk about the domain expertise is there's, there's two components of the domain expertise for this that I think, would have to be explored before crowdsourcing could be implemented. Number one is even if we take the thing that's most readily available, which is the film, we can watch these athletes play the game. There are issues in that most people, when they are watching film are, are observers. All right. So, they see the guy make a catch, make a tackle, make a sack. And that production becomes their evidence as to what the player can or cannot do. And ultimately, if this work was as simple as observation, then literally anybody with a pair of eyes could do it. I think – there is a larger percentage of the population 
that can do this work, but I do think there are trainings and I know I'm biased because I, well, I run a training program on this, but ultimately one of the things that we tell our students is, uh, and I use this analogy from a sociologist, Daniel Chambliss, you have to study how the plant grew before the flower bloomed. Because if we're talking about the draft, we're talking about the college to pro projection. We're not watching them play in the pros. We're not watching them be a professional in that setting. We're projecting to that setting. So at some point we have to understand why, when, where, how, whatever it is they did in college, good or bad. We have to understand how that came to be in order to have any ability to predict the future. Because we are forecasting. That's all scouting is. It's forecasting predicting the future. We don't care what they did in the past. We only care what they're going to do. And for us, right? We're selfish. We only care what they're going to do for us in the future. So the ability to unpack that, if people were above that threshold, um, I think crowdsourcing would have merit. And then ultimately, most of our failures with with our premium picks are not because the player was a bad athlete. It's not like the, hey, we graded him. He's a great athlete. Turns out he's a bad athlete. Um, that's almost unheard of, right? Especially because we can literally measure how athletic they are at events like the combine. Most of the time it's the player has premium athletic ability. Like even within an NFL context, they have premium athletic ability. But in the words of Jerry Angelo, there's two types of players in the NFL. You have guys that are playing professional football, and then you have professional football players. And so when we talk about a Tom Brady or a Larry Fitzgerald or a J.J. Watt, these guys have long careers because they are professional football players. They are craftsmen. And yes, they have physical abilities that are superior, but we've seen countless examples of players with superior physical abilities fail. And so for me to get excited about crowdsourcing – We'd have to make the information on the human being, right, the character of the prospect public, which my guess is most wouldn't submit to um, and want, want access to because it's a job you know, interview for them. Um, without those two thresholds being met, I, I get a little leery on crowdsourcing with like the entirety of the public. But I do think – that within an organization, if you take the 20 or so scouts, the 25 or so coaches, your analytics staff, whatever other staff that you've accumulated, your doctors, what have you, if you're going to have 30, 40 voices in that process, trying to use all of them more systematically, I think gives us a better chance towards that county fair crowdsourcing opportunity. If there's anyone that can do this, I think you'd be the person to do it. Because if I'm thinking correctly here, this is something you've implemented before, not with players, but with your your general manager candidate study, where for people who are outside the realm of household football names, like everyone knows that Oh, like Nick Casario from the Patriots might might be a, a candidate for another team for general manager the past few years. Like people have heard of those names, but 
something you've gotten at is that for the people that aren't those known names at the time, I, I'm pretty sure you had you had gone to people who, of course, not the general public, but people who work in football and have tried to crowdsource who they know that would thrive in the role of general manager and compiled a list of those people. That was, that was a departure this year. I'm glad you caught that one. That's again, you, you brought up the, the research paper going back to what's that published 2012, 2013, whenever that was. Um, I've been studying general managers for a long time. It took me years to put that thing together. And, and then all my subsequent work, I think I've been doing this for about 12 years now. And, Ultimately, and this is where I get in trouble with with football scouting lifers, evaluation ability, being a premium evaluator of football ability, I think that's what puts you into the candidate pool. At this point, I have a hard time believing that it is the biggest measurement of what would make a successful GM. Like if you can't look through a pile of prospects and know how to use your scouting staff and or your own abilities to tier them, you're going to have a hard time managing even the wisdom of a crowd because you're not going to have the domain expertise to know how to extract that value from that staff, train them, develop them, bring them along, what have you unless you get an owner that just literally would let you buy the best. But then again, if you don't know how to measure those things, how could you measure the best scouting staff? So that domain expertise, I think it gets you in the ball game. So most of the time we can find a list of people that have shown signs of being a good evaluator are known in the community as a good evaluator. I'm having a harder and harder time with that, because we've been applying that as the measure for GM candidates for 20 years. And the hit rate on GMs hasn't been substantial. There's only, I think, six GMs left that have a 10 year time in their job. Ryan Pace, I think, is the 12th or 13th most tenured GM. He was hired in 2017. So we're turning this over like wildfire. And then to me, if we keep using scouting acumen as the final straw, the final barometer measurement tool, what have you for potential success of a GM and it's failed us time and time again, then we're systematically approaching this improperly. Again, I think that that should get you in the candidate pool, but ultimately the role of general manager is incredibly multifaceted. You know, when I talk to candidates now, because I've been doing this work for so long and the the articles do have pretty good traction within the industry, I have provided counsel to a number of candidates here over the last few years. And one of the things I'll say to them is like, do you know what a good, we use the term cap guy in the industry, but the, the, the person responsible for managing the salary cap, like, do you know how to hire one? Would you know what to look for? Would you have a candidate list prepared? Do you even know how you would go about that? 
And most of the time it floors them. They've never thought about it because every building they've ever been in already had a person managing the cap. So they did their job. They scouted. And then when they had a cap question, they would go to the person who managed the cap. But they'd never given a second thought to what would ever happen if that person wanted to retire or got hired away by somebody else. Where would I go next? Same thing with your doctors. Same thing with your video staff. Same thing with your equipment staff. Same thing with your strength and conditioning staff. Like general manager oversees a lot more than just the draft. And so even if we take that off, we just talk about in the department itself, your ability to go around to schools and determine all of these different attributes of a player and then to have an ability to go into the marketplace and say, hey, this player's valuable. Well, if that's where you're spending 80% of your time and you're good at doing that, that's great. But when you become a general manager, you know, and the kind of the, sur- the unofficial surveying I've done, the job prior to being a GM, most people would articulate they spend about 80% of their time in true evaluative work, like in film, talking to people, writing reports, what have you, like evaluative work. Then you talk to people that got the role of GM and the ballpark number turns to more like 25 or 30% of their time spent on true evaluative work. So most GMs in the model that they build are no longer doing the heavy lifting of the work. They're making the decisions based on somebody else's work. And are they prepared for that? How have you, what have you built to systematically extract information from others as opposed to generating it yourself? Because in all the years preceding, when they became this, you know, this known scout, this great scout, it was on their efforts. It was on their work. And now the entire paradigm shifted to, I'm not doing the work anymore. I'm reviewing the work of others and extracting from that the information that I need to then go make a decision. It's a fundamental departure. And so I look at GM just so much differently than I used to. So when I did crowdsource for this year's piece, I specifically catered the question to, you know, don't just give me the best scout you know. I want to know who the multi-track mind is. I want to know the person that has the skills, the abilities, the backgrounds that make them stand out differently than others. And so to see people like Champ Kelly of the Bears who played, coached, was actually a GM of an arena team at one point, worked at IBM, has a degree in computer science, was an NFL PA certified agent, and then got into scouting. Um, Or Chris Shea of the Chiefs, who has a law degree. He's the general counsel slash personnel executive for the Chiefs. He's been a pro scout, a college scout. He's been on the road. He's been in the building. He's coached. Like these people that have done, actually done all the jobs in the building fascinate me because it stands to reason they have a much higher percentage chance of being able to actually execute the facets, even just from general management principles. Like when I went to go get my MBA, they basically tell you in an MBA program, like we're not making you an expert on anything. We're going to expose you to all the different departments and you're going to be intelligent enough in the department to have discourse with them, but you better hire the expert in marketing. You better hire the expert in accounting. You better hire the expert in finance, but we're going to equip you with the tools to know how to hire them and how to manage them. But you are in more of a general manager role. If we take that over to the football 
what are we doing systematically to prepare people akin to an MBA program to have enough domain expertise in every single vertical to hire, oversee, develop, and manage people there while they've really only come up in this one vertical and become an expert in the one. I love I loved reading this because I got that sense with the the study you published this year, the way you were phrasing the questions of how you were trying to get at who are the people with a large toolbox of skills at their disposal and a multi-track mind. I think th- those were the qualities you were looking for with this study. And something you mentioned that fascinated me was these general man- these prospective general managers have to know how to build an organization. Like you said, like how people might just assume they walk in and, oh, there's there's a cap guy here. And, oh, there's an equipment guy here already. Oh, the- here's the video department. Like, let me just ask them all this stuff. You might not have to, but you have to know how to build these things from scratch. And I think it's a fascinating thing, not just in football, but something I read recently, someone was pontificating somewhere about if in these modern days we had to build something like a fire department or a police department, but we had to build it from scratch like at a local or or state or federal government level, who would be the people to build these large-scale operations from scratch? And I don't think there's there's many people that could do such a thing because there certainly aren't people that have done it before. And it's getting more and more rare that these things happen. But we have to become better at assessing who can do such a thing. I completely agree. And, and ultimately I don't like the, the new rule that got put in for this year, that's designed to inspire an organization to develop their own um, for minority candidates. They get hired elsewhere to executive or head coaching roles. They, the league tried to build an incentive for the team to do the development. I, I don't know if an individual organization will ever have enough incentive to train their people to be ready to leave, go to a competitor and beat them. So I think that teams can do better on training and development. I think teams could, could care and invest in their people more, but ultimately if teams want a better candidate pool, more trained, more versed, more prepared to take that on. That's going to be something that the league office has to manage on behalf of all the owners to systematically do things like in the past, they've done two to three day symposiums. Um, They do some mock interviewing and some prep that way there there's, but it's all guidance for like how to win the job when the job's open. Or hearing some war stories from people that have had it before on like what went well, what went poorly, what do I wish I knew beforehand? And I'm, I love all that stuff. But I can't train a person to be a scout in two days. That's the lowest rung of the personnel chain. Am I going to really train someone to be a GM in two days? <laughs> Tall task. So, you know, I, I, I think if they care about this – 
it's going to have to be something taking up by the league office saying we are going to systematically build this. Um, I have pitched the idea to teams of basically kind of building in a, a couple months sabbatical for their staff every you know couple years. You know, most scouts are on a two to three year contract. So somewhere in there, maybe build a window for them to take some sort of sabbatical and go take a class. There's so many online courses, uh, you know, that you can take from a university on a topic or what have you. Um, like maybe do some things to invest in, in cross train and promote people within their job and things of that nature. But again, if I'm the team president or general manager of an organization, I'm not looking to make you a really good GM candidate so that you leave and then go beat me. I want you to be really good in your role. I want you to help us win, but I don't have any incentive to get you prepared to go beat me. Whereas again, the league office, if they're looking to do this, I think has a better opportunity. And that's something that I've learned so many business lessons like this. It's something I think the WWE does fantastic is that they've built from scratch their own performance center and training network and everything from start to finish to turn someone that's never wrestled in their life before into a polished professional wrestler. And they did that after seeing or after the industry norm being that you just hire some guy that wrestles on independent scenes or wrestles like in their backyard or, or all this other stuff. But they like went all the way back to the beginning and designed this process of putting people from scratch and they've, they seem to have perfected it, but that's something that struck me along the lines of what you were saying about maybe like the league would be the best organization to design something like that. And I don't know if they necessarily have a current incentive to do that unless owners kind of push them to, um, if they want to see the candidate pull change, I, it just, we're looking at a lot of status quo thinking, you know, doing the same things, hiring the same types of people with the same types of backgrounds who've had the same types of jobs and roles and hoping it's different. Um, you know, I mean, like I said, I'm very interested to see what happens. Uh, really, really liked what I heard from, from Brad Holmes in what he's talked about now in Detroit with things that he believes in and, and, areas that he's studied and things that he believes can be brought to uh, the scouting and evaluation process. So going to be definitely going to have my eye on, on what they're doing there in years to come. Um, but this, this space has to me, some low hanging fruit in areas that could be improved upon and, my hope is that discussion of this, um, openly sharing ideas and questions that I've come up with, if it can move the needle even a little bit, maybe I'm tilting at windmills, I don't know, but this game has given me my life, my ability to provide for my family, and I'm in a mentorship capacity for many people that want to work in this industry and I feel an obligation to them and to my 
my friends in the industry to see if we can't improve the environment that they're in so that their quality of life is better. And ultimately I think that's going to be fun for the fans because I think it'll lead to better outcomes for teams and therefore fan bases. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that sentiment. And I get two, two last things before I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but you mentioned, and something similar had happened to me recently. The background is you said, whether it was your first day or right when you started working for the Giants and you're working for Dave Gettleman and he said to you, what do you want? And I thought it was something similar just happened to me. And I was like, geez, I wasn't really prepared to answer that question. And when you had mentioned wanting to to have a, a his his role or a similar role i think the advice he gave you was that it's not about what you know it's about who knows you so i, w- I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more on that but also if you have anything else to add about if someone were to ask you this question now about getting to this gm role because it sounds like you've been learning more and more and iterating your process of finding out who would make a successful candidate if you were to advise someone young enough to to change the the course of what they're adding to their toolbox or or what skill sets they have how would you advise them to go forward dave's question it was my first that was a summer training camp internship so completely completely fungible role they're there for 5 weeks <laughs> Um, you're basically doing operations and trying not to screw up too bad. And he pulls me aside. And if you ever listen to him talk, he's just got such a kind of a folksy uh, charm to him with his Boston accent. And yeah, it was Hatman. What, what do you want? You know, again, dumbfounded by the question. So Basically, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh my God, I got in with the Giants. Like, I'm just excited to be here. Like, the five week fungible internship is an exciting point to me. Like, what are you you talking about? He's like, where do you want to go in your career? And fumbling through my answer, the the best thing I could come up with on the fly was like, well, someday I'd like to be in a chair like yours. At the time, he was the director of pro personnel for for the New York Giants. And so he. He goes, all right, I'll tell you how to get there. Man, you want to talk about grabbing a pad of paper and a pen about as fast as you can you can go. And he goes, all right, you can forget about what you know. And I jumped the gun a little bit, <laughs> trying to trying to seem like I could anticipate things. I'm like, oh, so it's you know, it's about who you know. And he goes, No. No, it's about who knows you. These jobs don't get posted. You're not gonna find them on indeed.com. Um you Someone's going to be vouching for you before the job comes open. That's how you make it on the list. And so I do believe that you can have some control over, you know, for lack of a better term, selling yourself, marketing yourself. Um, same time, it's a slippery slope because there's a thin line there of becoming known as a self-promoter that's seen as a, as a negative thing. Um most people in football subscribe by the theory of grow where you're planted, right? So whatever you're in, just crush that role and let the rest fall where it may. Um, I don't think you can 
necessarily do that in a vacuum unless you're drastically superior to everybody else. Um, if you are just above average, you're probably going to find some other things to differentiate yourself. Obviously, if you're special, um, good for you. And yes, then doing your job alone might get you through that. When I look at it now, you know, to steal from the, the, the Wayne Gretzky line, like where the puck is going, not where it's at. I wouldn't advise someone to aim for what owners are hiring for now because chances are you're going to put together a profile of skills and experiences and a network that may take you 10 years plus to get into that mix. And so you got to go where the puck's going. Like, And I've asked this question to people in football for the last 18 months. What will football look like in 10 years? No one has an answer. No one has an answer. And so it's hard to advise somebody on how do you build a strategy to implement 10 years from now when there's very little indication of what that's going to be besides, well, analytics will probably be big. So people in football, whether or not they have come to understand the language, whether they've come to understand the tools, how things are built or gathered or leveraged, they all understand that it's not going anywhere. And so I would advise people to at least understand the language. Right? When you look at all the different verticals we've talked about so far in this call, coaching, scouting, medical, equipment, video, data, technology, cap, all of these have their own language. So how are you going to come to understand all of those, that's going to be critical. And then as many hard skills as you add, this will always be a people business. The players, people. The coaches, people. The evaluators, people. So the soft skills are never going anywhere. right? The, we might use a lot of data to determine decisions, but the human being playing the game is not a commodity. They're not an inanimate object. And so you're always going to have to get them to optimal performance, which means getting that human being to believe that you're putting them in a position to be successful. And so the soft skills are incredibly important, particularly listening reading people, and when you're engaging somebody, don't just listen and wait to speak. It's really internalizing their point and trying to understand why it is that they delivered that and then work from that information. So even if a, if a player, a coach, a scout, whatever, they don't put it in the best possible packaging, it doesn't mean their intent was to be sloppy. Maybe that's the best way I can phrase it. Work to understand that person's intent, not just the product that came out. Because that's the information that's going to allow you to determine, should I just move on? Should I invest in development? Do they need praise and attention? Do they need to be put on a, you know, a kind of a tighter, uh, again, use my lanes bumper, my <laughs> bumpers on a bowling lane analogy. You need to tighten down and make some restrictions and get them focused. Like, what is it that you need to do to motivate this human being to be the optimal performer? That's going to come from your understanding of 
why they did what they did and why they believe what they believe. And the more you can improve in those areas, I think the easier it is to apply whatever hard skills have been learned to these situations. Once again, so many things I loved and I'm trying to, I'm trying to jot these things down because it fascinates me that if I'm trying to be better at anything, or, or like in this instance, if I'm trying to improve my podcasting ability, I'm listening to Joe Rogan and these other people that just seem to be naturals at it. But uh, I mean, of course, you, you go back to when anyone starts at anything. Like LeBron James wasn't good at basketball the first time he picked up a ball. So everyone has to start from the bottom. But something you mentioned, active listening. If I can improve one thing, and focus on iterating one process. And th- this isn't just for podcasting, but for, for everything else. It would definitely be active listening. Not only for all the reasons you've said, but there's so many interesting directions. Like how Maubison put it, like valuing optionality. I-, I think just by listening and reacting to what someone's saying instead of planning. Because, for example, like I had this three-page outline here where I didn't even get to like 80% of the stuff. And that's fine by me because I wanted to get at all the things you were saying. I threw all that stuff out the window because so many things you were saying were so fascinating. And this conversation, I think, would have gone a completely different direction if every time you had finished speaking, I was just like, so how about this question or this question and just negated all these amazing nuggets of wisdom you've been mentioning? I've done I've done a lot of podcasts over the years and it's something that I've always appreciated from the host is the ability to kind of roll with and let things be organic. Um, I think you can work it back into and, and you would grab onto something that I said, you know, in an answer and then kind of relate it back to a question. So you can continue to try to stay on a, on your path as much as possible. But yes, if you had stopped every time and then like completely course corrected, it's disjointed for everybody. It's disjointed for the listener. It's disjointed for me. You know, I don't feel like I'm being listened to. I feel like you're just waiting for me to answer. So you can ask the next one on your list as opposed to, you know, you engaged me after each point, brought it back to something that you'd learned elsewhere, either added to it or pivoted off of it. Um, I, I think that's important. It's actually something I advise people in networking is ultimately people like to talk, especially about themselves and the things that they care about. Can confirm. Uh, it's evidenced by you know me continuing to talk however many minutes we are here into this deal. And the if you know like a point or two you'd like to make to somebody, right? So you, let's say you've, you're, you've finally gained access to somebody that could really influence the direction of your career, or your life, and you've got a small window with them. If you go and you shove that point into their face, I always use the analogy of like, you know, cause I own a home now. So you end up going to Home Depot. And every time you go to Home Depot, there's someone in the main aisle, they're from the gutter helmet company or Culligan or Solar City or whatever else. And they're shoving some pamphlet into your hand, right? Please, you know, buy my product. And when you see that, you know, you're either going to be the person that maybe grabs a flyer and then throws it in a trash can or dodge eye contact and slip down another aisle or whatever you're going to do to avoid having to, to get into that because it's 
just, I, I don't want to deal with that, right? That's most people's response to that. Very few people are excited, like, ooh, let me go learn about solar panels, even though I never considered it. So when you go and you shove this point that you want to make into someone's hand, I, I relate it to having to be that salesman. You're pushing a flyer in someone's hand, and no one likes no one likes that, right? We, we like to feel like things are our own idea. And so it's always interesting. The best uh, analogy I've been able to come up with is kind of like inception. If I know the point I want to make, I will ask questions about them, their experiences, things that I, I've researched and come to understand that they care about that I think are tangential to the point I'd like to make. Because once... I get them talking about the topic where my point lives. Now, when I make my point, it feels like their idea because they're the one that was talking about that topic. As opposed to me shoving that topic into their face and forcing them to engage with it when they might not be ready. And so, like I said, it's just soft skills. It's, it's weird. It's the point where my psychology undergrad actually helps out. I think, um, of what, how do you manage these things? Because everybody's got ideas and you might even have a really good point, but if you can't frame it in a way where that particular audience can consume it, it's not one size fits all. People consume information differently. It's been proven time and time again. So you have to come to understand how that person consumes information and then generate strategy on how to deliver it as opposed to Sitting in isolation, coming up with what you think is the perfect strategy to deliver to everybody and then forcing it, it, that doesn't work. Know your point, then work to understand how they consume information, then you can build strategy for doing that. What's hard is it's a long game. It might require two, three plus engagements with them. And most people feel like I have to do an elevator pitch. I have to fire my shot now or I'll never have another one. If your first interaction with someone is quality, you've, you know, they've enjoyed the experience or they've... You've made them laugh or you've made them feel listened to or whatever. Chances are they'll give you another engagement. But that's about caring about them more than yourself in the early going, which is hard for people because we don't get taught to do that. It's it, it's We're taught to think about ourselves and, and, and manage every situation about what we can extract from it. I just don't believe in that. I play the long game. I will care and invest in other people. And then there may come a time where I can then actually make my point or, or, or make my ask known, but it'll be after I've shown them that I care about them. Do you watch the show Survivor? I do not. Everything you said about planting like inception, about making sure people think it's your idea and, and the soft skills and relating things in context to something that person's interested in all those things that's what i love about watching survivor it's seeing people do these things in action and nine times out of ten the 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 sole survivor the million dollar winner is an expert at doing these things and it's such a fascinating human behavior study that is not really replicated anywhere else. Like most, most reality TV I find is not, you, you really can't learn much from, from most reality TV, but survivor always fascinates me for exactly those reasons. And the lesson, the lessons to be learned there are fascinating. And I want to tie in something, something else you had mentioned earlier, like way earlier about 
there's really no incentive to train people to go out and do a job better than you and sort of compete against you in the NFL. And tying all these threads together, I know, I don't know how familiar you are. I know you follow Bronco Mendenhall on Twitter, but he's someone that when I was a student manager at, at Virginia a few years ago for his, his first season, all these things, I feel like he does extremely well. And I think it's, it's very rare that a coach approaches football this way. Not, not that I have a huge sample size to draw from, but he was always telling people that coaching is a teaching profession and the best coaches are the best teachers. And he, I, I believe he generally wants, he truly believes that his job is to go teach people to become better at whatever it is they want to do. And that works with his coaches too. Like I'm sure he'd be the happiest person in the world to see someone coaching for him become a head coach for even a rival team and do well, except for maybe when they play each other. But <laughs> I would go around whenever he was in a room, I'd be in, I'd be in the same room holding a, a notepad and a pen. And I would, I would write all these things down and, and years later, it still stuck with me. Have you interacted with him and, and, what have you taken away from from seeing him? I haven't, but I've heard uh, fantastic things. And actually, we've had a number of Academy alums um, who have worked at, at UVA here. And I there's a utmost level of respect for people with that mentality. Um, the people I gravitate to most are the ones unafraid to surround themselves with people smarter than themselves. Uh, it's one of the things I like about Chris Ballard with the Indianapolis Colts. Not only is Chris incredibly competent, but he has enough confidence and humility, which is not always an easy combo to find together, to recognize that if I continue to surround myself with smart people, even if they're the ones driving things, it's going to work out for all of us. You know, the rising tide lifts all ships type situation and yes, that might lead to other people going other places, but I'll find the next person and invest in them and develop them. It's one of the reasons like Bill Belichick has, he doesn't have to go out and hire, and I call it mercenaries. He's not going out to hire mercenaries. He has a, he knows how he's going to train coaches. They just promote from within. You want to pluck that one? Don't worry. I've got another, another few in the pipeline. And they've built 20 plus year track record of that kind of development and constantly working on deepening their bench and their abilities and what have you. And yeah, you can go take one person out of this, but I'm always going to have the next thing ready to go. And those, those kind of people, I, like I said, I, I like to be around. I like to learn from and listen to because the chances that an individual is going to have the right answer on every conceivable problem, challenge, strategy, what have you, that an organization is going to face is well, just laughable. But if you know your blind spots and your weaknesses and you work to fill the other roles around you with people that can complement that and you have versatility and even some redundancies within your organization so that there are overlapping skill sets and, and foster 
places where communication can be collaborative and not contentious. And all of these things sound easy, but they're really hard to systematically achieve. To do that, I think, is one of the greatest opportunities for a sustainable competitive advantage because most of the time it's, hey, let's go find some new bright, shiny thing, whether it be a coach, a coordinator, a player, a scout, exec, whatever, and hopefully they cure all our ills as opposed to more systematically building an entire structure of people where you never know where that idea is going to come from. I had a professor at grad school, uh, Alan Robinson. He taught in operations. He was a longtime consultant for Toyota. And he wrote in a book called Ideas Are Free. And a lot of, a lot of what I learned from him, there's many topics and in lean methodologies and things of that nature, but specifically like, a lot of times your best ideas are going to come from, you know, the, the group of people that have the boots on the ground. It's not going to be the C-suite because they're not the ones actually engaging with every facet of your organization. So what are you doing systematically to empower people? Like he would advise companies to build a pool of funds that lower level staff could tap into. I mean, they had to sign off if they took it, but they didn't have to go through some 19 levels of red tape in order to gain access to it. Like if you had a good idea, just go. He tells a story of uh, a hotel in uh, Seattle. And so again, a lot of consulting, a lot of traveling around on his world. And you end up in places where you're going to get caught in the rain coming in out of an airport or a taxi or what have you. And you got to go up to the hotel desk, right? And now you got to fill out, at least at that time, you to fill out more paperwork. And so You'd be up there and you, you got this overcoat and all your bags and everything's wet now. And, you know, most people are going to take that overcoat and maybe they'll drape it over their bag. But a lot of them are just going to drape it over the counter, right? And then try to do their paperwork. And he got the biggest kick out of this hotel in Seattle that had a coat hook attached to the wall right next to the checkout station. And he noticed it and he hung his coat up there and he asked the... Uh, the woman that was working the counter about the coat hook. And she told him that she got tired of travelers coming in and throwing their coat over the counter and knocking off papers and getting everything wet. And she went over to the maintenance guy and said, can you put a coat hook and drill it in the wall? And that was it. And they put a coat hook up there and her life got better because of a 25 cent piece of equipment and someone putting a hole in the wall to hold it up. And obviously he extrapolated that to larger things, but, you know, to allow for testing of hypothesis and testing of systems, build something of a smaller scale and, and trial it. And yeah, you got to put a little capital behind that in most cases, but the opportunities from that are, are exponential. That reminds me, and going back to what you said about Belichick training his own people from scratch and, and just this code hook idea is that i think it's something that naval said it's that most of learning is unlearning and i i mean i could spend hours unpacking just that statement itself but i want to wrap this up here with the the final question and i'll i'll combine these two things into one is that if you had a 25th hour in your day that you could only use for work or research purposes or something football related, what do you think 
would be the best use of that time. And then you could follow that up with what do you have going on with the scouting academy and, and everything else you're up to? Time spent. I, I've been trying to do more research on creativity and I read something and I'm, I'm going to draw a blank on the source and hopefully I can find the attribution and at least get it to you in some way. Um, but the most creative people, and I think the term was used was are underemployed and that when your entire schedule is filled up to such a heavy degree that you're just popping from one thing to the next thing that are all pre-scheduled, the opportunity for creativity is smaller. And so I do think that's true. In fact, I, I lament on, from an NFL context, I, I call the NFL the hamster wheel because they're always running and there's always something, the next thing on the calendar, the next free agency period, the next draft period, the next class of players, the next whatever. And they're always running to the next thing. And they always talk about being busy and there are a million things to do and not enough time to get it done. And I don't think it allows for any ingenuity because where in the calendar do they systematically build pauses for process development? They don't. You run for 11 months, you pause for one, you catch your breath, and then you run for another 11 months. And so that's why I like that idea of a sabbatical. Like, even if it's not every person for a period of time all year, like, give somebody the opportunity to pause and reflect and and think about things. And then again, the, the research I've done into creativity suggests that it's not like just sitting down and forcing yourself to be creative, but it's usually heavy, heavy amounts of research into a topic and then stop and move on to other things. And the way our brains work, those subconscious systems are still going. It starts to make those connections. And now that you've done all that heavy research, you don't know what, what thing is going to be the muse, so to speak, that crystallizes it all, but it's, it, it comes. And so one of the things I'm trying to build for myself are blocks of time each week for in-depth research. And then my hope is that by building that block, the time between that block and the next block, hopefully in there, those ideas can percolate and things can come up. Um, you asked about the academy. We just started our spring semester uh, the second week of January. So we run classes online. They're 16 weeks in length. And we run three of them a year. So we're, we're teaching 48 to 52 weeks in our neck of the woods. And then we have two master's classes now that take the principles and then apply them to the field. And so we're always working on that. Uh, we just redid our whole website and classroom to make our user experience and education better. Um, we have been working with some video and some technology partners to increase the visual aids in the teaching there. Um, people, most people are just more visual learners. And so trying to increase the number and the type of visual aids that we bring in. Um, hopefully by the time this airs, we'll have the first set of our glossary that is going to be hosted on YouTube. We're just going to give away um, all of this information that we've collected and, and visualized um, in hopes of elevating the discourse in the space. Um, 
we are looking at some other classes that we could offer, um, trying to figure out where exactly we want to plug in there. And then um, we would have this week been going to the Senior Bowl in past years, but with COVID and everything, the networking opportunities weren't there. So typically we host a what we call our live classroom, but it's an invitation-only program. We only take 25 people. Um, we actually work out of the Senior Bowl headquarters and our partnership with them. And it's educational, but really it's a, a thank you to, for them for their hard work and a networking opportunity. And it's for us to kind of put our mark on those people and say, you know, to the whole NFL who descends on Mobile, Alabama, hey, guys, pay attention to these folks. Uh, they've earned the right to be here and uh, to increase their networking opportunities. And just, again, without the networking being there, we didn't want to host that. Um, you know, we're not going to ask people to pay for a class and then not be able to give them the most important facet of it. So, um, and then the last things we're really going to build out our professional development for our alumni. And we're looking at building, um, monthly clinics where we'd be able to bring in uh, a subject matter expert and bring all of our alums in and have that interaction, facilitate discussion and work to help them be better equipped to execute at a high level within their organizations. And I'm sure there's other things we're working on. I've always got about 19 different projects running, uh, but that's, that's the ones that come to mind at least. I'm very much so looking forward to, keeping up with what you've got going on and best of luck with, with fulfilling all these projects. And I'm wishing you guys great success. And also, I mean, thank you so much for your time today. You were in incredibly, incredibly generous with your time. I I'm, I'm very grateful as, as I'm looking at the clock now, I've, I feel like this was a masterclass in so many different things. And I guess that's representative of what the future wave of general managers are going to have to be. You're going to have to be, like you said, well-versed in so many different languages. I, I really hope that candidates prepare themselves uh, for that. It's not something I'm endeavoring for. Um, I see myself in a, a support function to the, the industry at large, but I hope either whether it be our alumni, which again, obviously a little bit of bias there, but uh, anybody that is aspiring towards those roles uh, prepares themselves to be uh, a broader, more effective candidate. Thank you once again to Dan. This was absolutely incredible. If you enjoy the podcast and have not yet left a rating and short review on Apple Podcasts, I promise it'll be worth your while. Your support goes a long way in landing more fantastic guests and helping grow this community. Now, I want to leave you with this quote from chapter 66 of the Tao Te Ching. The translation reads, Thus, it is that when a sage stands above the people, they do not feel the heaviness of his weight. And when he stands in front of the people, they do not feel hurt. Therefore, all the world is glad to push him forward without getting tired of him. Just because he strives with nobody, nobody can ever strive with him. Thank you for listening. Until next time.